Welcome to the Michigan Constitution Podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. And now, Here's Tony. Welcome back to episode 20 of the Michigan Constitution podcast. We just had a major Michigan Supreme Court case handed down against Governor Whitmer, her plethora of executive orders, and the beloved emergency powers of the Governor Act. What did they say? What does it mean? Well, I'll tell you right after your spoonful of legalese. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast will review a different article section, we'll talk about what it means, and we'll review the Michigan case law, which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what this podcast is not. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law, I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated the day I post this podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan constitutional scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You'd do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8-Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice, you would be well served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their Lawyer Referral Service Program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal matter. To begin, if you haven't yet had a chance to listen to episode 11 of this podcast, that's the podcast where I review the lawsuit the Michigan legislature brought against the governor. I highly recommend you go back and listen to it now. I make this recommendation because a great deal of content and subject matter overlap between that case and this case that we're about to talk about today. That's episode 11. You'll find it at TonySnyder.com. This case is titled In Re Certified Questions from the United States District Court, but I think it'll go down in Michigan history better and perhaps more appropriately known as Midwest Institute of Health versus Governor Whitmer. So what's going on here? The plaintiffs in the case, the folks who brought the lawsuit, they are healthcare providers who brought a federal lawsuit because they were prohibited from performing non-essential procedures along with a patient who was prohibited from undergoing a knee replacement surgery. <laughs> so, all right, wait, wait, wait. How do we get from a federal lawsuit to the Michigan Supreme Court? After all, federal is the United States government, and a federal district judge, although pretty darn powerful, it's still not a justice of the Michigan Supreme Court, so what gives? Well, I don't want to run down too many rabbit holes in this case review. We've got a lot to talk about, but I will do my best to briefly share what's going on. And you're not going to get an education in state and federal civil procedure, so please know I'm boiling something very complicated down to about a 30-second soundbite. The plaintiffs in this case challenged the governor's executive order banning non-essential procedures. They believed that this was an infringement on their federally protected constitutional rights under the United States Constitution. But when the federal district judge reviewed the lawsuit, he said he couldn't really make a decision on the case without other Michigan legal insight to help him decide. Because what the plaintiffs were asking a federal judge to do was, say, an action taken at the state level was done in violation of federal rights. So, maybe said more clearly, None of the 50 states in our great country, they can't do something which infringes on your federal rights. And our plaintiffs in this case were saying that the prohibition in Michigan regarding non-essential medical procedures, well, that prohibition violated their federal rights. 
So when the federal district court judge is looking at the Michigan prohibition to non-essential medical services and trying to determine if there was a violation of the United States Constitution, the federal judge needed more Michigan law to rely upon to help him make his decision. So he did something called certifying a question. And here's how that works. When a federal judge is dealing with matters of state law, they're somewhat predicting how the state Supreme Court would decide that state law question. Now, the federal district court judge could have made a ruling by making an educated guess as to how the Michigan Supreme Court would have ruled on the matter. But most of the states, and Michigan is one of them, allow for federal courts to certify questions to the state Supreme Court asking the questions that are being asked of the federal judge. And if the state Supreme Court chooses to do so, the state Supreme Court can answer the questions asked of them. And that's exactly what happened here. The Michigan Supreme Court resolved the state law issues, and now a federal court will be able to render a judgment in the federal case in accordance with the properly interpreted state law. I know, I know, this is a crazy concept and not one that you really need to know about. I just wanted to help you understand how and why the Michigan Supreme Court became involved with a legal matter which was filed in the United States District Court. The federal judge said, and I'm completely simplifying this right now, he said, hey, Michigan Supreme Court, I've got a couple of state law related questions I need answered from you so that I can make a decision in this federal lawsuit. How would you folks handle this Michigan law? Because it'd give me some guidance on how to address it, you know, at least in regards to the United States Constitution. Right. I know. Is that simplistic or what? Hey, listen, I, I have told you you're not going to become a constitutional scholar listening to this podcast. My job is just to take the insanely complicated and distill it down to something everyone can walk away understanding. So you're probably wondering, what are those questions that the federal judge asked our Michigan Supreme Court to answer? Well, I have them. First, the judge wanted to know whether pursuant to the Emergency Powers of the Governor Act or the Emergency Management Act, did Governor Whitmer have the authority to issue or renew any of her executive orders regarding COVID after April 30th? He also wanted to know whether either of those two acts, again, that being the Emergency Powers of the Governor Act or the Emergency Management Act, if either of these two acts violated the separation of powers or non-delegation clause in the Michigan Constitution. Now, I don't want to get into a deep dive of a civics lesson here. This isn't a political science class, but a small little refresher. Separation of powers is a constitutional framework which gives certain governmental powers to the executive branch, here that being our governor, it gives certain governmental powers to the legislative branch, and in that instance, we're talking about the Michigan House of Representatives and the Michigan Senate, as well as certain governmental powers to our judicial branch. That's the different courts like the trial courts, appellate courts, and our Michigan Supreme Court who is making this particular ruling that we're currently talking about. Now, the Michigan Supreme Court spells out what sort of powers each branch of government is going to have. And if the legislature tries to do something that is a power only given to the governor, well, that's a violation of the separation of powers. Each group of governmental people, i.e. the governor, the legislature, the judges, they all have their own train track that they're on. And they can only do the things the Constitution tells them they can do. So the governor's train can never be placed on a judge's train track because the governor doesn't have constitutional power to do the things a judge's train track is allowed to do. And the idea here, we don't want to give too much power to any one person or entity. The theory is too much power in the hands of any one person creates a tyrant. So as a way to prevent all that power being given to one person, we have the separation of powers where we split up that power to three different entities, a governor, a state legislature, and state court judges. So that's separation of powers. Now, this non-delegation thing, it's a tricky concept, so follow me, all right? The idea of non-delegation means a power given to one governmental entity. That power can't be given away to a different governmental entity. So for example, the Michigan Constitution says that the Michigan legislature, those are the 
people that you elect to represent you in Lansing in that big domed concrete building, your state senators and state representatives are required under the Michigan Constitution to create the budget on how Michigan is going to spend your hard-earned tax dollars. So because the Michigan Constitution tells the legislature it's your job to create the budget and decide where and how the money is going to be spent, the Michigan legislature can't say, meh, too much work, want to hit the casino. Hey, Governor, you make up the budget, okay? Papa needs a new pair of shoes. Doesn't work like that. That delegating of the legislature's responsibility to the governor is in violation of the Michigan Constitution. If the Michigan Constitution says, legislature, you must put pen to paper and write up the annual budget, then only the legislature can write up that budget. They cannot give that responsibility away to either the executive branch or the judicial branch. And that, in a nutshell, is what non-delegation means. If the Constitution says this specific branch of government is responsible to do X, then only that branch of government will be allowed to do it. They can't give away their responsibilities. Okay, okay, we've talked about a lot of stuff. So let's finally get into the 107-page opinion written by the justices of the Michigan Supreme Court. Here are some dates you need to know. I promise they are relevant within this discussion. On March 10th, 2020, Governor Whitmer declared a state of emergency under both the Emergency Powers of the Governor Act, which was an act created in 1946, and a state of emergency under the Emergency Management Act, which was an act created in 1976. So about 30 years later, right? 46 was Emergency Powers of the Governor Act. 30 years later in 1976, uh, they also then pass a, a law called the Emergency Management Act. And these are the two acts with which we'll be working throughout this discussion. The 1946 Act is abbreviated to be the EPGA, all right? So when I say EPGA, I'm talking about the 1946 Emergency Powers of the Governor Act. And the 1976 Act is the EMA, the Emergency Management Act is the EMA. Again, if you haven't listened to episode 11, you'd be well served to pause this podcast and go listen to that because the Michigan Supreme Court adopts a great majority of that court decision for this decision here. And while I plan on talking about it and going into depth, throwing around terms like the EPGA and the EMA are made more clear in episode 11. Okay, so state of emergency under the EPGA and the EMA is declared on March 10th. On April 1st, the governor again declares a state of emergency under the EPGA, as well as states of emergency and disaster under the EMA. At the same time, the Michigan legislature agrees with and provides the governor with a resolution supporting the continuation of the states of emergency and disaster in Michigan because COVID was still going strong in the state, especially on April 1st, when the governor did all this. But here's the kicker. The Michigan legislature told the governor her states of emergency and disaster, which she issued under the EMA, it was only good until the end of the month, April 30th. The Michigan legislature said that come April 30th, the governor needs to work with the legislature to come up with a plan on how to proceed from there. Well, April 30th came and went, and the governor never worked with the legislature to extend the declarations about an emergency and a disaster, so the legislature took no action to extend the declaration timeline. In response, the governor said, okay, cool. She terminated that April 1st declaration on April 30th, but literally one minute later signed into effect new declarations stating there was a disaster and an emergency going on, and the EMA says she has the right to make such declarations if she thinks there's an emergency and or disaster in the state. She also reissued, pursuant to the Emergency Powers of the Governor Act, the EPGA, a declaration there was a state of emergency. Now, it's relevant to explain here that each act, whether it's the EPGA or the EMA, when they come into play through a declaration, each act has its own powers and authorities. So the governor can do certain things, thanks to the EPGA, which she can't do under the EMA, 
And the EMA lets the governor do certain things under that act that the EPGA doesn't let her do. But when those forces combine like Captain Planet, you get one hell of a ton of power. And the governor took advantage of every single bit of power these two acts provided. Hence, our lawsuits. But here's the rub. And here's the reason why the Michigan legislature sued the governor, as I discussed in episode 11. The EMA and all its powers given to the governor are only good for 28 days. On day 29, the governor either needs to terminate the declaration, thus losing all her powers given to her by the EMA, or she needs to go to the legislature and ask the legislature to extend her EMA powers for a certain extra number of days. If the legislature does, as they did on April 1st, and give her until April 30th, then those powers she has under the EMA continue on, and she wields that power until April 30th. But here in our case, on April 30th, she did not go to the legislature to ask for more days, so the legislature didn't give her any extra days. But, and only a lawyer, which the governor is, would think up this crafty legal argument. The governor says, well, okay, okay, I'm going to terminate the declaration on April 30th because the legislature didn't extend my days. And the act says I'm required to terminate the declaration if the legislature doesn't extend my days. But the EMA also says that I have the authority to declare a declaration if I believe a disaster and or emergency exists in the state of Michigan. Well, COVID is still going on. I consider that both a disaster and an emergency. So I'm going to redeclare a state of emergency and disaster under a brand new declaration, which gives me 28 more days to have the power contained within the EMA. Literally no court hearing this argument made by the governor bought what she was selling. Not the state judge in episode 11 or any single Michigan Supreme Court justice, and there are seven that sit on the Michigan Supreme Court. I mean, calling President Clinton, can you tell me what the definition of is, is? The Michigan Supreme Court ruled that the legislature was clear they wanted to allow the governor to have certain powers regarding an emergency or disaster, and those powers are pretty broad. But that's the reasoning why the legislature imposed the 28-day limitation on those powers. The theory was, let the governor deal with some emergency or disaster in the state of Michigan as the governor believes appropriate. But that power is only good for 28 days. After those 28 days, governor, you either need to have terminated that declaration giving you that power, or if the disaster emergency was still occurring after 28 days, then come to us as a legislature and work with us and we'll extend out the number of days we all think you probably need to get that disaster or emergency under control. You get to keep all your powers given to you in the EMA, but only for a specific number of days that we, the legislature, give you, Governor. And this is how the branches of government should work. You don't want to give any one branch of government too much power. So this 28-day limit acts as a check and balance to ensure that no one branch of government has too much power over any other branch of government. One of those actions that the governor took during her 28 days, then canceled the declaration, then redeclare another 28 days, was this prohibition on non-essential medical procedures. So the plaintiffs had to sue, asking if the governor had the right on April 30th to redeclare emergencies under both the EMA and the EPGA. But what the federal judge wanted to know was whether or not the powers given to the governor, particularly under the EPGA, which we've not yet really discussed, but I promise we will in great detail, was whether the EPGA resulted in the legislature giving away some of its constitutionally required job responsibilities that they shouldn't have given over to the governor. So we've already established the governor does not have the right to cancel and then re-up her own declarations just to get around the 28-day limit. But what about the powers given to her under the Emergency Powers of the Governor Act, the EPGA, which does not have any sort of time limitations placed upon the governor. Is that problematic? God love the men and women who sit as judges. Sometimes I think they believe they get paid by the word because the majority opinion is 48 pages waxing poetic. But don't you worry. I'm going to sift out the nuggets of gold for you. 
Let's talk about how the 107 pages broke down amongst the seven justices of the Michigan Supreme Court. The first 48 pages was the majority opinion, which we are reviewing and discussing right now. The majority opinion was logically agreed upon by a majority of the seven justices. Four of them agreed. But one of those four justices, while he agreed with the 48-page majority opinion, he decided he wanted to write his own opinion regarding a different matter, and he waxed poetic for almost 38 pages. You heard me correctly. The majority opinion was 48 pages, and this dude wrote his own 38-page opinion. We will literally never talk about it. Whatever he had to say, he should have provided it in a Reader's Digest length. And from there, the dissenting opinion was signed onto by the other three justices. But one of those three justices, he wrote his own eight-page dissent. And we may or may not review his dissent. It's only eight pages, not 38. So I kind of want to reward him for his brevity, but we'll see. The one thing that all seven justices agreed upon, the governor violated the EMA when she pulled that stunt about canceling a declaration and re-upping it so that she could get around the 28 days. But the EPGA is where we get that four to three split amongst the seven justices. Four of the justices ruled that the EPGA was an unconstitutional delegation of authority away from the legislature and given to the governor. These four justices said the Michigan Constitution gives certain responsibility to the Michigan legislature and they cannot delegate away those responsibilities to the governor, which is exactly what the Michigan legislature did in 1946. But the other three justices, they didn't think that the responsibilities given away by the legislature violated the Michigan Constitution. They thought the powers given to the governor were completely appropriate and that the legislature, even if it was their responsibility, did not offend the Michigan Constitution when they gave their authority over to the governor. And we'll eventually discuss all of that. But first, let's talk about the four justices and their majority opinion. They first began by stating they did not think the Michigan legislature was correct in their misguided belief that the EPGA was written to only address local emergencies. The legislature argued, and again, I covered this in podcast episode 11, that the authority given to the governor in the EPGA was limited to local, not statewide emergencies. The legislature argued that the EPGA was designed to give the governor power to deal with flooding or fires, maybe riots, very specific emergencies in very specific areas. The legislature did not think that the EPGA should be read to allow something as statewide as a pandemic. But the Michigan Supreme Court shot down that argument. They got great use out of a Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary 11th edition throughout this opinion. They define a ton of terms. And the first term they defined was the word within, which means the inside of. So the justices ruled a statewide emergency is an emergency within the inside of the state, with the entirety of Michigan's counties, cities, and townships being located within the inside of the state. Therefore, the coronavirus could constitute an emergency inside the state. It need not be localized to a specific area like the Upper Peninsula or Grand Rapids or Berrien County. The four justices once again smacked down the legislature when the legislature argued the EPGA references the area involved, the affected area, any section of the area or specific zones within the area, as a way to support their argument that the EPGA was only intended to apply to local area emergencies. The court once again, breaking out their handy-dandy 11th edition of the Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, stated that the term area was defined as a geographic region. The area involved or the affected area may comprise the entire state, or it may comprise a more localized geographical part of the state. Therefore, the governor could create rules that pertain to the affected area, to a section of the affected area, or to a specific zone within the affected area. These terms do not indicate that the governor would be prevented from declaring a statewide emergency, at least so opined these four judges. 
But the justices thought it simply meant that once the governor had declared a statewide emergency, the governor is not obligated to treat the entire state in an identical manner. And truth be told, I have to imagine the reason why the Michigan Supreme Court is addressing these matters is because, as mentioned earlier, the legal arguments being made by our medical center knee replacement patient plaintiffs overlap so closely with the Michigan legislature versus Michigan governor lawsuit. And because the Michigan lawsuit versus the Michigan governor case was appealed to the Michigan Supreme Court, I suspect they're rolling their decision in the legislature versus governor case here into this case that we're talking about right now. I bet we're going to see a dismissal of that other Michigan legislature versus governor case by the Supremes due to their addressing the exact same questions in this case opinion now. But I'll be honest, that's really just a well-educated guess. So I find it fascinating that the Michigan Supreme Court goes out of their way to tell the Michigan legislature they're barking up the wrong tree, arguing that the EPGA doesn't give the governor authority to declare a statewide emergency. They really do decide on behalf of and in favor of the governor by agreeing that the coronavirus is a statewide emergency and that the EPGA gives the governor statewide emergency powers. The Court of Claims judge, as discussed in podcast episode 11, is completely and 100% supported by the Michigan Supreme Court. Without directly saying it, they say the court of claims judge, well, she got it right. But the four justices ultimately go in a direction that the court of claims judge never walked, and that was the non-delegation argument. These four justices say, even though the governor was right when she argued that the EPGA gives her the statewide authority to take the actions she did against the coronavirus, that still couldn't save the EPGA from being unconstitutional. The justices thought it was ironic, really, that even though the EPGA grants the governor the power to proclaim a state of emergency based on the pandemic, and as such, exercise broad emergency powers, that it's that very authority which violates the Michigan Constitution. The justices really zero in on the concept of delegating authority to other governmental entities. And this should not surprise us to some extent that the legislature delegates away their authority. When the legislature creates a new law, they usually allow the governmental agency responsible for the day-to-day -day administration to create necessary rules to effectuate the law. This is commonly referred to as the promulgation of rules. Think about it like this. The legislature creates a skeleton when they pass a law. The act says how the law is supposed to be, but then the legislature lets the enforcing agency create rules which help to implement that skeleton law. The rules which get created by the enforcing agency, those rules help fill in that skeletal law. The rules serve as the organs, as the eyes, the skin, etc., etc., on that skeleton to make it a workable law. I think a great and maybe somewhat uh, recent example of this is the legalization of recreational marijuana. Once the citizens of Michigan legalized recreational pot, the legislature had to create an act which would govern how it was grown, how the marijuana was tested and transported, and ultimately how it got sold. So the Michigan legislature set up parameters on what was expected of people who wanted to grow it, who wanted to test it or transport and or sell it. But the day-to-day -day operation wasn't overseen by the legislature. It's being overseen by the Marijuana Regulatory Agency. And they had to decide who would be issued licenses and how must the marijuana be secured in a grow facility or in a person's car when they're transporting it. They also had to deal with answers like how it should be stored when it's actually in the pot shop itself. All those day-to-day -day requirements are found not in the act passed by the legislature, but in the rules created by the Marijuana Regulatory Agency. So why isn't that delegation a problem? This concept of making the law and what should be in the act passed by the legislature will be balanced against the discretion given over to the enforcing agency to enforce those laws. The Michigan Supreme Court had to wrestle with the distinction between the delegation of power to make law, which necessarily involves a discretion as to what the law should be, versus giving authority to enforce the law and all the authority that comes along with that power.
And the justices concede that the legislature can, under certain circumstances, give away this authority, but there's got to be some guidelines and parameters. They cited one of their own opinions back from 1985, whereby they said, challenges of unconstitutional delegation of legislative power are generally framed in terms of the adequacy of the standards fashioned by the legislature to channel the agency's exercise of the delegated power. The standards prescribed by guidance must be reasonably precise as to the subject matter and what it requires. So maybe said another way. The answer to figuring out whether the giving away of authority is allowable is by looking at the statute in question and figuring out what tasks are being given away and what instructions are provided on how to wield that power. So standards or guidance and parameters, if you will, they need to be evaluated. The more guidelines provided by the legislature, the better chance it stands of being a legitimate delegation of duties. Also, the scope of the power is relevant when determining the sufficiency of those standards and guidelines. The justices opine that a critical component of the scope of the delegated powers is just how far-reaching those powers go, meaning how many things can be controlled with the powers being granted. There was a United States Supreme Court case which also dealt with a delegation situation by Congress, and the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that the ultimate judgment regarding the constitutionality of a delegation must be made not on the basis of the scope of the power alone, but on the basis of its scope plus the specificity of the standards governing its exercise. When the scope increases to immense proportions, the standards must be correspondingly more precise. Our justices here in this case said it was one thing if a statute confers a great degree of power over a narrow subject, but it's quite another situation if that power can be brought to bear on something as immense as an entire economy. The third point the majority talks about is the duration of time given to wield that power. Granting an indefinite amount of time over this great power only allows for a greater accumulation of power versus granting something with temporary authority, like maybe that 28 days, remember? And we can time this aspect back to the EMA real quick, because if you remember under the EMA that the governor is granted a lot of power, but only for 28 days. After the 28 days, if the governor still wants to maintain that power, the legislature has to authorize additional time. No additional time means no more power for the governor. And that's an excellent example of delegating authority, but still keeping the reins on that duration of power. The Supremes opined that the EPGA, the scope of the power given to the, the governor, was very broad in nature, especially when you're looking at all the things covered by that power. But then combine that vast amount of power in conjunction with the unlimited duration of that power. Because remember, the EPGA has no time limit as to when the power comes to an end. Then the guidelines imposed upon the governor must become very detailed and precise. Okay, so I gave you a ton of information about scope, duration, and standards. Let's break each one of these down one by one. Regarding the subject matter of the emergency powers provided within the EPGA, the justices start off by saying that these powers are very broad. The act gives the governor authority to issue executive orders for protecting life and property or to bring the emergency situation within the state under control. And this ability to issue orders to protect life and property is considered to be a police power. When the governor issues an executive order which deals with protecting life and property, the governor is engaging in powers to police people's activities. The Michigan Supreme Court holds that police powers are reserved to the legislature. And this makes sense, right? The power given to the legislature by the Michigan Constitution is to make and establish laws as necessary to keep people safe. Who makes it illegal to kill someone? Well, the legislature, by passing laws like first and second degree murder charges. Who makes it illegal to drive drunk? Well, the legislature does by passing laws like DUI charges. Who makes it illegal to possess or use or sell crack cocaine? 
the legislature through its laws against drugs. See how the police powers to restrict people's actions is given to the Michigan legislature? The Michigan Supreme Court said the EPGA suspended normal civil government by imposing a curfew or a restriction on the right to assemble or the prohibition of the right to carry on businesses licensed by the state of Michigan involves the suspension of constitutional liberties of the people. And the court went on to illustrate how far and wide-reaching these emergency powers went because of the EPGA. The justices said that through executive orders, the governor impacted the following public policies. And I'm presenting this in a bullet point fashion, so hang on. The governor's executive orders required all residents to stay home with limited exception, required all residents to wear face coverings in indoor public spaces and when outdoors if unable to consistently maintain a distance of six feet or more from individuals who are not members of their household, including requiring children to wear face masks covering while playing sports. The executive orders also required all residents to remain at least six feet away from people outside of one's household to the extent feasible under the circumstances requiring businesses to comply with numerous workplace safeguards, including daily health screenings and employees. The executive orders closed restaurants, food courts, cafes, coffee houses, bars, taverns, brew pubs, breweries, microbrews, distilleries, wineries, tasting rooms, clubs, hookah bars, cigar bars, vaping lounges, barbershops, hair salons, nail salons, tanning salons, tattoo parlors, schools, churches, theaters, cinemas, libraries, museums, gymnasiums, fitness centers, public swimming pools, recreation centers, indoor sports facilities, indoor exercise facilities, exercise studios, spas, casinos, and racetracks. The executive orders also closed places of public amusement, including arcades, bingo halls, bowling alleys, indoor climbing facilities, skating rinks, and trampoline parks. The executive orders under the EPJ also prohibited non-essential travel, in-person work that is not necessary to sustain or protect life, and non-essential in-person business operations. The orders also prohibited the sale of carpet, flooring, furniture, plants, and painting. They prohibited advertisements for non-essential goods, non-essential medical and dental procedures, and non-essential veterinary services. The executive orders under the EPGA prohibited visitors at healthcare facilities, residential care facilities, congregate care facilities, and juvenile justice facilities. Likewise, the executive orders under the EPGA prohibited boating, golfing, and public and private gatherings of persons not part of a single household. Whew! Each of these policies, the court held, was done so under the concept of quote-unquote protecting life and property and to bring the emergency situation within the state of Michigan under control. Yikes! What may be the sharpest criticism against the EPGA were these two sentences, quote, these policies exhibit a sweeping scope, both with regard to the subjects covered and the power exercised over those subjects. Indeed, they rest on an assertion of power to reorder social life and to limit, if not altogether displace, the livelihoods of residents across the state and throughout wide-ranging industries. Whoa. So now you can see why the Michigan Supreme Court found that the scope of power plays an incredibly important role in whether or not the legislature can delegate away their police power. Because think about all the things that have been done through executive order. The limitations, the restrictions, the prohibitions. At least if the legislature did that, you'd have to convince a majority of both state senators in the Senate and state representatives in the House to vote in favor of those restrictions. But as it stands under the EPGA, the governor simply has to sign an executive order and she can impose all those restrictions with a stroke of a pen. As a society, we like the idea of the police powers being reserved to the legislature because the Michigan legislature consists of 38 state senators and 110 state representatives. You need to get 19 senators to vote yes and 56 representatives to vote yes before the law passes. Oh, and by the way, those numbers, the, the 19 and the, the 56, that's what you need to get for a majority of, of votes in the Senate and in the House, respectively. And how well do you think you can get 19 senators and 56 representatives to agree on anything? 
So again, you're starting to see why we like to leave police powers in the hands of a legislature of 148 members, because it takes a lot of negotiating to get enough votes to place that sort of restriction. Again, compare that against the power of the pen to sign an executive order. Now, what about the duration of time allocated to wield that power? How does that come into play? The opinion points out the powers provided within the EPGA can be used by the governor until a declaration by the governor that the emergency no longer exists. Therefore, wrote the majority, the governor's emergency powers are of an indefinite duration. Effectively, you know, they end when she says it ends. The fact that the EPGA authorizes an indefinite exercise of emergency powers for perhaps months or even years considerably expands the scope of power provided within the EPGA. For that reason, the indefinite period of time delegating that amount of police power to one person adds to the unconstitutionality of the EPGA. And thirdly, the standards, or lack thereof, was the final nail in the coffin against the EPGA and its unconstitutional delegation of power. The justices really struggled with how to set the standards regarding the legislature's policymaking power versus the legitimate authority to give the governor the power to carry out policies created by the legislature. The answer was to look at the scope of the power, which we've done, and see whether there are corresponding standards which are precise to corral that power. Under the EPGA, the court said, the standards placed on the governor's exercise of power only limit her to reasonable and necessary decision-making. The statute, using those two words, reads as follows, quote, After making the proclamation or declaration, the governor may promulgate reasonable orders, rules, and regulations as he or she deems necessary to protect life and property or to bring the emergency situation within the affected area under control. Thus, and appropriately so, the Michigan Supreme Court says that the term reasonableness is a word put into the act that has practically zero worthwhile value to it. I loved it when the court said, and I'm paraphrasing here, well, of course the term reasonable is irrelevant. The legislature is presumed not to delegate the authority to act unreasonably. But they also relied upon the influential United States Appellate Court of the District of Columbia when that court discussed the concept of delegation at the federal level. That court found, quote, We fail to find the significance in the fact that Congress said reasonable regulations instead of simply regulations. Here, the word reasonable clearly is nothing more than surplusage, for we cannot assume that Congress would ever intend anything other than reasonable action, unquote. I mean, okay, but I think they're giving way too much credit to Congress having any clue what they're actually doing, right? I mean, after all, sometimes they have to pass a bill to find out what's in it. But I digress. The word reasonable, our state Supreme Court said of the language in the EPGA, was also surplusage. The term was far from imposing a significant or meaningful standard upon the governor. It neither gave the governor direction on how to carry out the powers given to her under the act, nor did it in any way limit her conduct in any realistic way. Remember, the language at issue is, quote, After making the proclamation or declaration, the governor may promulgate reasonable orders, rules, and regulations as he or she considers necessary to protect life and property or to bring the emergency situation within the affected area under control. End quote. Once again, the Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary 11th edition was used to look up the definition of the word necessary. It was defined to mean, quote-unquote, absolutely needed, or even more simply, required. The justices said that given the exceptionally broad scope of the EPGA, which allows for an indefinite timeline for all orders that are issued merely based on the words necessary to protect life and property, the court held such a standard is also insufficient to satisfy the non-delegation doctrine when you consider it both on its own and in conjunction with that word reasonable. The justices took a rather philosophical tone here by saying life and property may be threatened by a virtually unlimited array of conduct, circumstances, and serendipitous occurrences. 
They used an example of a person driving a car instead of just staying home, and how engaging in the activity of driving may fairly be understood as posing a threat to life and property because there is perpetual risk that the person could be involved in a car accident. And under that scenario, the court says, the governor could use the EPGA powers to find it appropriate to issue an order prohibiting people from driving, merely based on the rationale that it's reasonable to imagine a car accident occurring. Therefore, requiring people to stay home logically protects the person's life and their property. Simply put, the EPGA provides zero guidance as to how the governor may use her power, nor what type of limitations are placed against the governor. And, and, and one quick brief side note here, there was a footnote in the opinion that the justices included which clarifies that the word necessary may be part of a sufficient standard imposing a limitation on the executive branch, but the word itself was not sufficient enough of a standard to limit the governor. There, there, there was not any extra, there was no there there, right? There was no, there was nothing uh, in addition to what it meant to be necessary to help allow this provision to be acceptable. It, it, it was lacking with any sort of additional information and support as to what necessary would mean. So in conclusion, the court opined that the lack of standards, and remember, standards really just means direction or guidance and limitations, it means the governor possesses free reign to exercise a substantial part of the legislature's authority under the Constitution, specifically police powers, and the governor can do so for an indefinite period of time. And because there is nothing in the act which guides what necessary or reasonable means when issuing executive orders, that is too great a delegation of authority away from the legislature to the executive branch. Accordingly, the Michigan Supreme Court concluded that the delegation of power to the governor to promulgate reasonable orders, rules, and regulations as he or she considers necessary to protect life and property constitutes an unlawful delegation of legislative power to the executive and is therefore unconstitutional under the Michigan Constitution. Because again, the Constitution prohibits exercise of legislative power by the executive branch. Now, let me opine for a few minutes, so please indulge me. I'm going to give you my legal thoughts on this, and notice that I said legal thoughts, not political thoughts. I think that the Michigan Supreme Court majority was telling the legislature, basically the concept of the EPGA is probably a legitimate constitutional goal. At the end of the day, a governor being one person can make decisions faster, has access to news and updates which are only minutes to hours old when decisions need to be made, and that there is value in having a governor orchestrate a response to emergencies and disasters within the state of Michigan. And to a certain extent, don't we look to the head of our executive branch to plot a course based on the information available from the boots on the ground and the experts within that subject matter? Of course we do. And there's nothing inherently wrong with giving that authority to a governor. But what the Michigan Supremes are saying here is the legislature needs to be cautious about how much power they're giving the governor. You know, that's the scope of power aspect. The legislature needs to be cautious for how long they're giving that power to the governor. And again, that's the duration aspect. And the legislature needs to be cautious about what guidelines they're giving the governor to exercise those powers. And, and again, that's the standards aspect. Here, in our EPGA case, the legislature gave an almost blank check of power to the governor, and the governor got to write out that check as to how much power she had. The legislature gave no timeline for how long the governor can wield that power. And finally, the legislature gave no limitations under which the governor had to restrain herself. I think the Supremes could have potentially found the EPGA constitutional if the legislature would have included a few of those aforementioned requirements. And I don't know what the legislature would have needed to include, uh, may, you know, as it relates to the standards, the duration, and, and the narrow scope of authority. I don't know if the court would have found one out of three to be acceptable or, or two out of three, or if they would have required all three to be deemed constitutional. They don't answer that in this court opinion. But I see the legal point the majority was making, and I agree with it, to ensure that one branch of government 
does not become more powerful than another branch of government, a separation of power needs to be maintained and respected. If the legislature gives up its police power, as assigned under the Michigan Constitution, what value do they bring to check and balances against an executive branch? Where is the protection for the people of Michigan that prevents all the power being infused into one person, and under this scenario, the governor? The Michigan Supreme Court, an equal third branch to the legislature and executive branch, did exactly what their role was created to do, specifically to be a third branch, well, <laughs> a third party, to look at the role of each of the other two branches, again, that being the executive and legislative branches, and determine if the Michigan Constitution allows for the actions that these two branches are attempting to make. And when the legislative branch sees that the legislative and or executive branch is doing something in violation of the Michigan Constitution, that branch needs to be smacked back into place. Here, in our case, the legislature improperly gave too much of its responsibilities to the executive branch with no limitation, and that is not constitutionally appropriate. Okay, listen, I think that's going to do it for this podcast. I've given you a ton of information to think about. Matter of fact, I'd recommend you go back and start this podcast back from the beginning and re-listen to it. Now that you've got a basic understanding of what's going on, the legal concepts and the arguments which are being made by both the governor and the legislature, go back and listen again with a foundation now having been built, understanding exactly what the delegation doctrine means. And I think you will really then pick up a lot more the second time through and it'll make even more sense. Maybe some of the questions you might still have outstanding will be answered in that, in that second listen through. In the next podcast, I'm going to do a back and forth review of the Chief Justice's dissent in this case, comparing and contrasting it against the 10-page opinion that the majority wrote to counterpoint the Chief Justice's dissent. And I kid you not, it, it literally, it, the, the, the majority opinion, the header says, response to the Chief Justice, and then goes on for 10 pages to make seven points, trying to counterbalance or make a counterpoint to what the Chief Justice said. And, and I think it'll be kind of interesting just to see, you know, the dissent thinks this, the re response to that by the majority is, is, is then this side of that coin. Because the majority opinion does a really nice job, I think, in their opinion, helping the three justices explain or, or help to explain to the three justices where they may have gotten it wrong, why these three justices should have sided with the other four. But until then, this has been the Michigan Constitution Podcast, and thanks for listening. The Michigan Constitution Podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com, send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at Tony Snyder. Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. Thanks for listening.